What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Software Vlogcast, episode number 27, episode number, I don't know, eight or nine without chin. You're uh, you're the resident co-host, Nick Howard, in the building. Welcome. What's up, guys? So, you're back. Been I'm back. Here. Been here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, small talk is not Nick's thing, so we're going to breeze right past any sort of intros while he sips on some ghost. Uh, I just want to get a couple things out of the way really quickly. So, as you should all be aware by now, um, we just launched Season 1 Highlights Poker Out Loud. You were in it. I haven't checked it out, but yeah. I'm in at least two episodes, I think. So, we did a top 10 of Season 1, which was the infamous Queen Jack Hand. Nice. Threw that in there? I don't know. Chin, Chin chose the list, so I don't know where, uh, where the rankings are going to come out. The uh, first episode launched this past friday right after thanksgiving and uh it was three hands i think one was you three betting chin with 10 six suited from the small blind it's cringy to watch play of two years ago mm. like even just like i think we were pretty good back then but like even looking back two years ago you're just like 10 six suited. you're like i think you had some good properties playability <laughs> can make a flush and a straight so yeah it's gotta yeah, be worth something that's, that's true um chin hit you with a four bet with the king seven suited he wasn't scared i remember that hand now yeah. that you're talking about it um yeah and there were a couple other kind of interesting hands actually i think it was four hands this past one um so in accordance to that we're obviously going to give them a free tease of on second thought as well so this friday will be the uh, first episode of On Second Thought that will go over those four hands and uh, discuss why you shouldn't be squeezing 10-6 suited from the small blind. Yeah, that was a a change that I think I started to make as the seasons went on too. It was like, originally when we did Poker Out Loud, I was like, oh, this is a full, this is a fun concept. Let's just completely donk around pre-flop so that we can play as many yeah. hands as possible post-flop. And then something sort of dawned on me, I think like mid-season two, where it was like, this is not a very trainable, this isn't good for like training people. Like if people are actually tuning in, trying to like figure out how to navigate from pre-flop to the flop to the turn, we should probably be starting with like more reasonable starting ranges. Yeah, I, I agree to some point. I actually found like your play season one because it was so erratic to be really compelling if you know what to look for and what to listen for. So if you're just looking to mimic a strategy, uh, it's a nightmare. You're mm -hmm. just doing too much bullshit preflop. Yeah, for sure. But if you pay close attention to the the methodologies behind it, I thought that you were actually able to kind of ration your way through uh, a lot of very, very complex spots that most people aren't going to find themselves in because they're not going to have three, four off. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I mean, that was ridiculous. I think I called a three bit out of position with three, four off like from early position. Um, and I think the reason that there's clear reasons why I shouldn't do that, but the basis was I'm going to be navigating patterns in a vacuum uh, accurately enough that I think I can get away with playing pretty poor playability pre. The problem is that as you start playing really bad hands pre, you don't even have enough playability post-flop to navigate the the subtlety of the patterns yeah. that, that you want to be able to navigate. So like, it's it's hubris in a sense. It was like, yeah, I think 
that in a vacuum I can navigate better, but my play my playability matters more than I'm letting on. I don't think that's what in a vacuum means. Wait, which part? Well, in a vacuum, in this particular reference. In a vacuum, I think maybe I should be able to navigate more hands with less no, playability. Not in a vacuum, in this specific environment. Are we going to fucking get into this yeah. now? Okay, yeah. I guess we got to do a, it. In, just... in a vacuum would be... In a vacuum with the parameters of this environment, I guess is what I'm saying. Not in a... So, so this is actually an important distinction. I'm guessing what you're saying is like in a theory vacuum. Well, what I'm saying is that in a vacuum is kind of devoid of variables. Okay. And, and the way I'm thinking of it is like, if we had the variables that we have at this table and they stayed the same with no consideration of time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That that would be the way that I'm looking at it. So like, if I think I'm at a weak table, I can play way more hands, but maybe, uh, maybe that still doesn't mean I should be calling three, four off right. out of position versus three bet. In fact, it almost definitely shouldn't be playable. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's just an example of me, um, you know, younger me getting carried away with thinking I need to push every edge or like just getting too worked up about pushing every edge. Well, the thing is, is that like we're not in a vacuum and uh, in a lot of ways, what you're doing will have uh, a lot of impact on future decisions, both for yourself and the environment around and you. And it did too. Like you guys definitely adjust right. way faster. Than but but it, could be, it could be poor adjustments like what we saw with Chin. And that's kind of what I'm getting at is that in a lot of ways, future EV is determined by uh, previous anecdotal evidence. So in a lot of ways, when we're talking about sacrificing EV for the long run, it, it is a lot of that. It's demonstrating that you'll call a three bet with three, four off out of position. Now suddenly your strategy uh, becomes reckless. And for somebody who is maybe not as in tune to range assessing and, and things like that, once they get out of the logical realm, it becomes challenging. The three four thing, just to stay with the extreme point, that works until someone just makes a sweeping generalization, which is an accurate generalization, says he's just playing way too many hands. Yeah. The moment that happens, it's pretty hard to make a bad adjustment against me. The Fair. adjustment should just be like don't fold and and place five play slightly well, better hands than i do pray i would agree with you in some sense but if it's a transparent adjustment then uh this is where meta comes into play this is what we've always said you're best at is that like the moment that somebody says oh berkey's not gonna fold is the moment that you make big hero folds or just catch people on the switch right and that's kind of what i'm alluding to is that like if if you're very well aware of your image at this point and you see that someone like say chin is now what you would appear or what you would deem to be over aggressing He's over aggressing because of what we've seen through you. Now your counter adjustment is pretty transparent. Yeah, tighten up. Right, but he just... may if he lags behind at all, he's getting punished hard. And I think this is the main thing that I've sort of switched just about my general. Like you like to do this because you're used to playing one table with maximum reads on your opponent at any given time. Yeah. But I had to sort of accept from from two perspectives. Like one. When I'm a player online, I'm playing multiple tables and I need a, a strategy that allows me to conserve energy. Um, and this will lead well into like the next point too when we get into it. But then the second dimension I'm looking at it from is like I also need to maintain awareness over the fact that my bottom line goes way up if I find a way to train a methodology right. that is like somewhat simplified for my average student. Yeah, and a lot, so, of, a lot of times this is why I'm saying that there's such a differentiator between live and online is because you're right, you're heavily incentivized to just have a, uh, a list of protocols that you can kind of follow with 
uh, discipline and resilience and just know that it's printing money because you have data to back up where your opponents are weak. Where in the live realm, I'm kind of collecting that data on the fly and I'm trusting myself to parse it and understand where I think weaknesses are coming and then try to maximally exploit those weaknesses. Would you agree that you are increasing complexity Have by to, doing yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So why don't you open up with uh, the next point, which is this blog that, that Kuhn released recently, because I think it's a good lead yeah. into explaining what's being presented there. Uh, I think that that blog that he posted can be read from from different in different ways. Like you could read that as him saying, uh, you know, poker is a beautiful game still and it's just getting more difficult, but there's still a lot of edge, mm -hmm. etc. Or you can read it focusing specifically on the methodology that he's conveying. Yeah. Or you can read it from a sense of like, oh, this is so depressing. I'm never going to be able to follow the type of complex decision tree that he's offering here. So first I want to ask you, like, what way did you read that post? What stood out to you? Um, and then second, let's open up the can of worms of how that could potentially help or hurt the average reader. Sure. So I took it a fourth way, um, which I think is most interesting to discuss because it has the most direct um, actionable path towards the community as a whole. And that's effectively why poker fails as a spectator sport. So why this isn't a TV product? Because I think that that was the vein through which he actually wrote the article is everybody's being so critical of, uh, of you know, let's call it what it is, e elite talent, right? Like people are so hypercritical of the absolute best in the world because it's not a product that's being showcased in a way that uh, they're comfortable watching. And even uh, when I quoted that and kind of, uh, I quoted Jason's tweet and I kind of said like, you know, this is an eloquent way of putting why uh, TV has fallen as a spectator sport and some of the pushback was just like oh well we need guys we need characters like sammy farha and and uh jamie gold and all these other guys and it's like those guys were a byproduct of uh a, an opportune time when the game was so unsophisticated and uh so heavily rooted in gambling that the audience was captivated in just kind of getting to the point of understanding how game worked the game worked as a whole and then seeing large sums of money trade trade places if someone was going to talk shit over top of that great but you can't expect the game to evolve the way that it has i mean if we're talking about it being a, a newborn infant in 2003 it's you know a toddler now that's that's a rapid level of growth and we're still trying to present it in the same package where it's like gotta have good table talk if you don't give good table talk we don't want you on our show it's like, well, that's bullshit. The best of the best in the world aren't saying a word for a reason. There was that, and it felt like he also, I think the way that he framed it on top of the character portrayal or whatever you want to call it was that like the decisions are just taking way longer now. Mm. And it's not edited perfectly like it was anymore. Right. Like it's not even watchable. Right. Like, nobody yeah. watches a live stream. That's anymore. that was definitely the backbone of it, is is uh the big reason why you guys hate us is because we're generally slow. Right, but let me right. explain to you why we're slow and the fact that we're not just sitting there posturing. Okay, and that's when he un unveiled his his extremely lengthy decision tree process. Yep. So without getting too much into the, the fine points of the methodology, mm -hmm. tell me that that fourth dimension that you see that through in terms of like when you're thinking about how this relays, how a, how a decision tree like that sort of relays itself to the viewer. Right. 
is it helpful or hurtful on the whole? In, so in I, 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 well, I think it's both, right? I think that it's a great way to demonstrate that there are two games being played. There's the every man's version of poker, and then there's elite poker being played at a level that most aren't going to be able to comprehend. And I think it's really critical to make that distinction because for far too long, there's been commentary by the masses that the only thing separating them from a Jason Kuhn or anybody else who's out there really like putting in the work and reaping the rewards is money factor. And that's just false. Uh, you know, Money certainly has something to do with it, but there's a reason why a certain subset of people are getting the opportunities and the rest aren't. They've, they've put in the work, they have a natural aptitude and talent for this. And uh, you know, more critically speaking, when you look at that protocol, most people just aren't capable of parsing through that much information in a 30 second time frame, And that's what we're talking about with shot clocks these days. So assuming that's true, which I think it is, and you can look and maybe they should just like put a screenshot of this when they do it, but like yep. not honing in on the exact decision tree and like the, the accuracy or, or inaccuracy of it, but just showing how many bullet points he's going through was pretty fascinating to see. Um, Did it resonate with you at all? It did, but from a different place where what I was fascinated by was there's this one part where you, no one who's not playing at that level should ever speculate on how good or bad that methodology is. Right. That would be straight up hubris. Agreed. Um, That said, I look at it from a level where I've worked with river decision trees that are half that complex from a training format. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've seen intelligent players who would be able to beat high stakes buckle under a decision tree even half that complex. Sure. So when I look at it like that, it's like the the major thing I took about from that article was that isn't it funny that elite level poker is emphasizing how the game tree is expanding? And while that may be useful and true if you're already at the top, I think it's actually damaging to the masses. Because they're not even at a level where they're beating MSNL yet. Right. And the thing going on in their head is like, Kuhn says that the game tree is expanding. I got to find that method. I got to memorize that 15 bullet point methodology that's going to let me activate myself in the way that he is. Don't you think in some regards that protocol that he listed is a lot more helpful than uh, throwing the masses to the wolves like we have in the past and saying like, well, you don't have these 15 bullet points to memorize. You have 50 sims. billion sims yeah. that you need to For run sure. in order to be able to play this level. And don't get me wrong. I thought it was cool. Like I, I really liked the fact that he was just totally transparent about what he works through. Mm-hmm. And I thought in a sense it was practical. But I think it's going to be practical for such a small subset of players right. to well, be able to is, work through that. The Yeah, the, the thing of it is is that a lot of that he's just naturally doing. He doesn't have to think about it. Right. He doesn't have to think what his global range is. Right. Like it just comes to him. It's, rather inti- it's integrated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think what's happening is that when he sits down to write that blog, he's actively trying to dismantle a thought process that's large, largely subconsciously integrated. Right. And it ends up looking like if you just read that, you're like, holy shit. He's thinking about all this. Right. It looks on like the river. hunting, like solving yeah, the, yeah, exactly. the problem in the middle of the night. And I think there's gonna ha- there's gonna be two detrimental effects of that when the average reader and by average I mean like honestly, I mean like ninety eight percent of people who play sure. poker like for money. 
one guy is going to look at that and say, this is depressing. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to match anything like this. Mm -hmm. And it just turns into like a really defeating moment for him, a defeated moment. The second guy looks at that and gets inspired, but like delusionally inspired. Like, okay, this is what I've been missing now. Yeah. I'm going to like make a a bullet point spreadsheet out of this and th th I'm going to study only this. Like now I have Kuhn's methodology. Yeah. yeah. This is going to do it for me. Yeah. And he's overlooking the fact the the layman is overlooking the, the fact that by increasing your level of complexity practically speaking you're going to decrease the quality of your methodology you're not going to be able to navigate that nearly as pretty as it looks on paper right and the result is that this clunky 15 bullet point decision tree that you now try to implement in real time is going to produce cognitive dissonance for you, which is going to result in distortion and poor decision-making. You know what I think all of this stems from? And I, I've been putting a lot of thought into this lately, uh, but I haven't really come up with any sort of like concrete methodology to present it to people. But I think all of this stems from a really poor understanding of what is a mistake, right? So because we don't have great metrics to measure um, the EV of our decisions, particularly in a live realm, often we just gravitate towards results. Um, and I'm not even saying where, where the pot's pushed. I'm saying like what hands are turned over. You know what I mean? Because like that's really the only natural feedback we're getting. Because of that, we're so biased towards running into the top of the range over and over again. And it's so easy to forget the times that like, you know, we made a, a, a proper bluff catch and was shown worse or was actually shown a bluff. You know what I mean? It just gets beaten into your subconscious all the times that you call and you're wrong as opposed to all the times that you call and you're right. Mm. And by not having any sort of like real trainable method into judging yourself, what ultimately happens is, you know, he, he created this protocol and uh, I'm sure as he's going through the list, he recognizes how imperfect each decision point is, right? Basically, if you can run through these 15 points and you're 80% accurate to what you need to be in accordance to the work that you've done the, the knowledge you have of your own game, of your opponent's game, and of the sims that you've run, you're going to be doing pretty fucking good. Mm. Like 20% margin of error on, on what the solve would do in this particular situation is going to yield a pretty high result, especially if you're in tune to your opponent's counter strategies at that same heightened level. I think it's a good entry point to talk about a complex methodology. You said, what's a mistake? Right. A mistake, I would say, is when you begin to use subjective analysis as opposed to just being strictly objective. So I know you hate this, but like, let's pretend we actually knew. I don't hate it. Uh, my, my problem with it or my pushback with it is that we're naturally subjective creatures and we're in an environment where it's hard to Agreed. actually get objective data in real time. So on a, on a spectrum then, assuming we'll never be able to get to like purely objective, mm -hmm. we, we could agree that there are observations we could make about the environment that are simpler and convey the market imbalances a little bit better yeah. than potentially a 15 point decision tree that that really leans into subjective ter territory unless each of those bullet points that you're toggling through in your river decision tree are very observational and by that i mean like he's in the cutoff he's using a river sizing of one third pot He's doing so on a four flush river, which I would argue that that that's Jason's 
uh, fair enough methodology and point behind it. But I agree with you; it's difficult to duplicate. The point at which those bullet points become subjective, like my opponent's probably thinking this here. Right. That's a very subjective statement. It yep. no longer has anything to do with just like looking at a situation and making a blatant observation that could not be challenged. Right. This is the difference between objective and subjective, and the the danger of going into a very complex decision tree is that it's i think it's there's two points to this first that will not usually result in a very accurate output if it's too subjective it will it will basically be filtered through with heavy distortion Mm -hmm. and when it turns into an output it's going to be messy yeah and it's going to be leaning towards um I know you don't agree, but don't you think that that is kind of what live poker is and why it's so profitable? It is a bunch, it, it's a collection of these messy outputs and the person who can kind of translate them the best and the the most accurately is going to be the one that wins. I think that's fine. I'm on board with that. And, and the point that I think is worth making is that if you had 80% accuracy with a very complex decision tree, mm-hmm. I would argue that someone who had... 95% accuracy with a very simple decision tree might actually be able to perform better. I so, think that's a reasonable argument. You know, you can play with those numbers the way that you want, but the point is pretty simple and the data shows this to be true that like <laughs> my brother actually uh, just wrote a new article for our CFP team really explaining this well. He called it the problem with exception seeking. Problem with exception seeking is that if someone told you here's the here's the strategy you can implement and your returns will be eight percent yep on a portfolio or something what the normal person does the usual person they, they look at that and they say okay so what are the exceptions to this and how can i optimize it even further mm-hmm. and in the process of trying to optimize a portfolio that already performs well they'll take certain things out and put certain things in they find exceptions and it actually decreases the performance of the portfolio well that's that's the entire premise behind game theory right uh, what you just described is um, the exploitative realm. So if they're correct in the exceptions that they employ, they're going to maximize because they're going to become maximally exploitative. If they're incorrect, then they're going to minimize because now they've become maximally exploitable. And the whole point of game theory is to reach that cross-section of effectively minimum risk of being wrong and maximum EV return. And that's why you end up at like this 8% instead of like, you know, really going high risk where you could potentially have double that return or uh, zero. And even if you are just taking an exploitative strategy, this is where I think you need to really distinguish like what's going on in the market is really how you describe what a mistake is. If mm-hmm. you could, if you know in a sweeping generalization that the market overfolds, right? Like vastly, like universe, like globally. Yeah. If that overfold is significant enough globally throughout the game tree, it is very unlikely that a methodology that looks for exceptions of when to check the river and when to rationalize for checking river as opposed to bluffing, it's very unlikely that a exception-seeking methodology is going to perform better than just like bluff all. Yeah. In a market that's that, right, that balanced. Right. The, and, and we're going to, we're constantly going to, play this dance because we just have to, but you're coming from a very privileged perspective where you have a ton of data to both back the environment that you're in, as well as like your generalizations. Fair enough. The vast majority of the people that you're speaking to are left to their own subjective biases. And 
I think it becomes a little dismissive to just say like, we'll go get the data. Okay, cool. So that may be true, but if we're going to stick with an argument of what does it take to qualify what a mistake is, then there's basically two major dimensions to poker. If we're going to talk in a very simple way, it's are you incentivized to bluff a spot? Mm -hmm. And are you incentivized on the other end of the game tree to call when someone's betting? Ace king queen game. If I if I literally just put poker into that simple of a context, in order for me to look at an overarching strategy, so somebody's like all encompassing river strategy. Yeah. I would look at that and say, if you are not leaning in the direction that the market incentivizes you to go in in the in those two decision tree. How do you so like how, bluffing well, or calling? Let, let me stop there for a second though. How do you determine what the market is incentivizing? I'm looking at a lot of data. Right. And that's what I'm getting at. That that's that's the hard sticking point is that most everybody else is not. That's fair. But then I would say that that's a dangerous way to approach an investment strategy. And we've had this conversation yeah. before and, and you can say stuff like well, the live player is trying to collect data intuitively, and you know that I have issues with that because I don't trust the intuition. Just like sure. you said, I don't trust that we ever even actually understand variance right. or can comprehend variance. Yeah, I'm yeah. worried that we're going to have a lot of confirmation bias if we try to track the incentives of the market by just like looking at showdowns and trying to determine like what the frequencies are over time. So all I'm saying is that if you showed me a market that was imbalanced enough where we could make a sweeping generalization that say, that said the market substantially overfolds and universally they're over bluffing. Then anybody's strategy that wasn't doing a lot of bluffing and a lot of calling is a mistake. Right. That methodology becomes a mistake in my mind. Right. We're having two totally different conversations though, because if if that data were available to everybody, the game would change drastically. You would think so. But the problem that I'm seeing constantly, which is the, the thing that I think we actually are talking about the same thing exception seeking is what creates people exception yeah, seeking they, they is want what control exception seeking is a is a byproduct of wanting to control the bottom line and it generally makes a methodology perform worse sure. in a market that is already quite imbalanced right but with time those players would die off because they would be the weak players the stronger players are just going to take data for what it is. They're going to become data analysts and they are just going to empl employ a strategy. It's what we see in high frequency day trading uh, and all these other realms that are so incredibly data driven. What I'm trying to get at is uh, essentially this whole world exists where data is, comes at a premium and is largely unreliable because it's mostly subjective. And the question I'm kind of posing is if you had none of the tools available to you that that come from the online environment, could you still beat live? Could you beat mid stakes and high stakes? It would require that the pool was extremely imbalanced. Like, okay, because what you're basically saying is if I had no data at all, mm -hmm. how would I go about it detecting the market imbalance? The only way I would feel kind confident of. that I can detect a market imbalance without data is if that market is so skewed or imbalanced in, in a certain direction. Like say they just like are folding 98% of rivers. Sure. I know I'm using like an extreme yeah, example. Yeah, that would be the only way I'd be willing to put my confidence in an investment strategy that required me to observe the market imbalance. That's how little faith I have in human intuition. Like uh, yeah, in that, this that, sense. I, I understand. Uh, I guess like my, my pushback against it is just that um, the market will be imbalanced for sure. Because if you're devoid of all these 
objective tools. So is the market. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is I wouldn't stop playing live poker without data when the pool's dried up considerably. Right. Like the so reason you can do this point. in live poker is because it's fishier than online. Right. That's the next point is that what if the market is just so soft? Then so I think crypto was a good example. You have incentive right. to continue to try to navigate without data. And, and maybe I think this was when we talked about this, like we had three pretty intense conversations about this. And this was sort of our our resting point with it, which is like, I think you have incentive to try to navigate based on intuition for as long as live poker remains as soft as it is. Yeah. But the moment that live poker becomes as difficult as online poker it is, I'm exiting the industry and going to look for another market where I can actually gather data. We, we 100% agree there. I, I think that it's improbable that those to ever uh, intersect. I just think live will remain the way it is due to the inability to scrape data at any reasonable conclusion. And I think what's made live slightly tougher recently and you know, doubling all the way back to Jason's protocols is that when data is absent, uh, game theory presents itself as being uh, the, the most probabilistically high EV choice or the highest EV choice, right? Because you can implement it with the highest level of accuracy by comparison to uh, what you're essentially saying, which is navigating off of intuition. And just to cap that, and I think we need to use a metaphor here. Like let's pretend that we were baking, let's say we're baking a pie or something. Let's say we're cooking something that requires 20 different ingredients. Yep. Two of those ingredients make it taste like what we're trying to cook yep the other 18 are like boosters okay. for flavor okay and this recipe doesn't come with exact measurements the only thing you know is that there are more important variables and less important sure. variables in that recipe i would argue that the fruit filling is more than the salt so yeah if we just talk about the fruit filling versus the salt a recommendation to just get the fruit filling in and put the damn thing in the oven mm -hmm. is probably going to result in a better tasting pie on average than someone trying to fuck around with 18 ingredients where they don't know how much of each one to put. Right. So my point is basically that going back to using very complex methodologies that have 15 bullet points on a river decision node, as opposed to something that may be focused on one or two, mm -hmm. if you could figure out how to identify the two most important observational components of the hand to look at and just nail those two at a very high rate of accuracy. Like say we can nail those two really important ingredients 95% of the time. I think that starts to look like a higher performance strategy than the guy who's tinkering with all these ingredients that he doesn't really know which are more important than the other. And sometimes he decides that the salt is the most important variable right. of the entire recipe and the, and the thing turns out tasting like shit. Technically speaking, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, I just think that comes with a low ceiling. So I think that what Jason really conveyed here and what might get lost in all of this because people are always looking for an out of the box, ready to employ solution is that what he really described is his methodology and how he thinks. Mm -hmm. and why he chooses to think this way. Now, he was doing it in the framework of, um, I need you all to understand why high-level players are slow. And you know that I, I completely agree with. Uh, but if we look at it instead from the framework of, this is a, a, an exercise in how to improve the way that you think, you're right, one through 15 aren't going to be, like 15 isn't gonna be as important as one necessarily. But um, 
as you are growing as a player, it's important to expand off of those one or two bullet points that will get you to profit, right? In order for that to be, in order for me to get on board with that, someone has to show me that they're able to hit the two bullet point methodology at a very high rate of accuracy before I'm willing to say that expanding is going to but I, but I think in the live realm, we do see that happen, right? We, we see people who are very mechanically sound pre-flop. They recognize board textures, range advantage. They understand sea uh, betting patterns. And this is all just really coming off of like one or two of those bullet points. Like who has range advantage and uh, what does the entire scope of my range look like? So if we just look at like those two exact bullet points, they can kind of like use deductive reasonings uh, to get to navigate the rest of the way through and essentially quote unquote feel their way to being better than everybody else who's not even considering those two bullet points maybe and i'm more focused on like i'm not as focused on pre-river navigation i think it's important well he was talking on flop whenever he wrote this but he also discussed a situation where like on the river he was using a specific randomization strategy and like there was 15 different so it was all pre-river it was all flop yeah I think that makes it even less useful, honestly, because what a player would have to demonstrate to me is that you are making such accurate decisions on the river regularly enough that it would make sense for you to divert your study energy towards mixing properly on earlier streets. Yeah. In other words, like I'm, I'm interested in where the bulk of a player's mistakes are actually coming from. I know as a trainer who sees people struggling constantly to get beating MSNL even or SSNL, mm-hmm. how many of those mistakes are gravitating towards fucking the river up right but usually that's a byproduct of early decisions i don't agree so this is where we're going to have a, a okay. an actual conversation it looks like i did a consult with a player on my team who actually just had a breakout three to four months um it was very surprising to just sort of watch his results skyrocket from ssnl to hsnl now and i didn't get to speak to him this entire time the way that our divisions are delegated like I basically come in when you get to top division mm-hmm. and you work with the other coaches until the point where you're at high stakes. So I called him for the first time and had like our first real discussion since he's been on contract. And I was specifically asking him to just like in a in a very overarching way try to explain to me how his game developed from small stakes to high stakes. And one thing that he pointed out was I actually started to call rivers a lot more. Yeah. And when we did an alias of our winning players and our losing players on Coaching for Profits team, the one of the things that stood out the most was that the losing players called River 10% less frequently than the winning players. So if you see an outlier like that in terms of like, we can clearly say that unless you have like gaping pre-River strategy leaks, the river is where most of the mistakes are coming from. The river is where a lot of the EV is getting passed back and forth if you are imbalanced. The rivers where the exploits are the most important, if in an imbalanced market. Yeah, I agree with that. If we see something show up that says certain players are playing the river radically differently, just in terms of macro frequencies, mm-hmm. like bluff catching, that to me is not something that is that hard to train. If we can put it in that in, in a but, very macro context like that, like right? Guys, but the reason that the imbalance occurs is because of the pre-river decisions being made as, uh, as uh, by the collective. So if you're saying that like the person you're analyzing doesn't have those pre-river mistakes, then yeah, that's great. He just gets to exploit. But the vast majority of players trend in a certain direction that allows them to have too many bluffs on the river and not enough confidence to be bluff catching effectively because ranges are just too wide. 
that's fair that maybe most of people... that stems though from like a simplified flop strategy where it's just like i'm only gonna have one bet size here and it's gonna be bet 100 right instead of like recognizing like oh in these textures i actually should be splitting between two bet sizes and the entirety of my range doesn't get to bet okay so now make your point in terms of what is called what is generating the market imbalance on the late streets it so, is the range composition that people are using earlier well in my in my opinion it's uh it's uh, a coupling effect so because they are trying such simplistic methods early in hands um what it leads to is simplistic thinking up until the river and that now lends itself to a projection where they land in a spot and they are uh you know projecting this range onto their opponent where they're being exploited if they do certain things too often and so that when i filter that through what i know about the two major types of player imbalances is going to result in them rationalizing for something that's overly risk averse mm -hmm. or overly reckless totally de depending on what type of player archetype right. they are right 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 so I can get on board with that. So now that now that we've done that, we basically have two different types of players, one of which is rationalizing for an over-aggressive strategy up to the point of the river and maybe even on the river. Mm -hmm. And the other guy defaults towards rationalizing for too conservative of a strategy. Yep. So you have, if we were, and I like keeping it like this, like just in terms of like sweeping generalizations around what type of model we're yeah, looking at. Like I could, I could see this working out in a way where like they both bet 100 on too many boards on flop for too small a size and then it diverges on turns this archetype checks way too often and then lands on river in spots where like has no idea how to defend his range and then this guy just like double barrels way too often and then lands in the aggressive note on the river far too frequently so let's stick with this and now i'm the player trying to respond against one of those two archetypes okay. i'm dealing with facing river bet and what i'm trying to what i'm trying to decipher i guess is on average, unless I have very good information, meta reads about yep. what archetype you are, mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out whether or not this spot incentivizes me to call or fold. When we've studied the data of the market, what we find is it's much safer for a player to default towards calling in those spots than sure. folding. And that just has to do with the global trend that people are over bluffing rivers obviously there's exceptions to this but if i had to give one heuristic yeah to a player who was but you agreed that they they're over bluffing because too many hands have landed there that has to be the case right i think it's definitely a part of it like one of the things that we know is the most important ingredient to the recipe of bluff catching is mm -hmm. is there a late position formation active right and and so like th this was it's so great because that leads into my next point nice i just got goosebumps when i said that too <laughs> um it's it, to me, this all goes back to the to the desire to simplify, right? So what's the easiest way to correct having too many hands at the river? It's to start with a tighter range preflop. And you would expect that the reason that people are bluffing too much in late position formations is because those are where their wider preflop ranges exactly. start from. Like that, exactly. oh, that has to be right. correlation. So, so we've trended this way where now like we're getting all these preflop solves and you know, it, it's, it's no secret amongst those in the know that there are just a ton of flaws in the way that these solves are being created. Like, they're not perfect heuristics, right? They're great guidelines. Um, but they trend conservative, particularly when you're sacrificing position. And sure enough, like, people are making probably fewer mistakes in, in a sense out of position when it comes to over-bluffing because they don't have as many hands to land there. Now, whenever you go late position, we have this thing in our favor now that's so valuable which is ultimate position and now we get to over aggress and suddenly ranges expand completely 
And this simple strategy that we've been employing through the earlier positions now gets very complex. But we're just gonna still imply that or employ the same heuristics, right? Advantage board, C bet 100 for 25% pot, land on the turn, figure it out, split, split, split. And all of a sudden we're on river with way, way, way too many hands. And that's where you see a very simple methodology being able to outperform a more complex methodology. Like the right way to train a player how to deal with bluff catching in a, in a formation or a model that you just outlined is call a lot. Right, right. But but it's because an early street simple methodology is being employed. If that's, that's Jason Kuhn in the in the hijack, calling a lot isn't going to function quite as well. All you're basically saying is that Kuhn is more balanced. Yeah, precisely. Which is, which is fine. Like yeah, that's yeah. that's totally. Like, there's no question that nosebleeds player nosebleed players are more balanced. Right. No I guess question. full circle. I I think that the reason they're capable of navigating in a more balanced realm is because they are able to internalize this long uh process of how to split street by street let's just say their randomization skills are just all around better whether that's happening pre-river f- or, or or on the river yeah they're well, doing something better. but i guess what i'm saying uh that that's very true but what i'm saying is that's a byproduct of them being willing to take on more complex strategies earlier in the hand in order to simplify river strategies that's fine i don't think that i would be able to play a well-balanced strategy with the methodology that i operate from Right, but you it would have, require something else. You have the availability to pretty extreme exploits. Right, and, and that's really and, and profitable. That's, so, so that's really the entire thing is like coming back full circle to why I think this this type of gaining this type of vision over a high level player strategy is not going to help the average player because the the average player is trying to figure out how to beat small stakes MSNL right and get to HSNL. Yep, and in order for him to do that as efficiently as possible, he's going to have to deploy against the imbalances of the market, which lucky for him, make it pretty easy to play a simplified high intense exploit strategy. I agree. High intensity exploit strategy, whatever you want to call it. If that player then reads an article that says, this is what's going on at nosebleeds, they're using a 15 bullet point decision tree that puts a lot of emphasis on perfect randomization, Mm -hmm. you know, pre-river and on the river, then that player now just severely decelerated his path to high stakes yeah he's I, not going to get there as fast as if he played a it's it's, an it's reading strategy. a calc 2 book whenever you're still on basic arithmetic so most people can get there and then the objection they have is but i don't care about that because really what i want is to discover the strategy that allows me to scale to nosebleeds right so there's this fundamental mistake being made in investors on the whole i think this is not just limited to poker where if they get access to the methodology that's being used at the top level, the next thing their mind does is it says, I'm dismissing everything that could get me to the mid and high level as fast as possible. I'm just shooting for that methodology right. to get me to the very top. And the problem with that is that it's hubris because there's very few people who are actually going to benefit from implementing the, com- the complexities that are utilized at the nosebleed level. And these are not even guys that are beating MSNL or SSNL yet. Right. They don't have the the layers necessary to even begin to cultivate this more complex level of thinking. I get this a lot where people will hit us up and they'll be like, hey, I really like everything that you're doing. But um, do you think that I would benefit from this being that I play stake X, Y, or Z? And my answer is pretty much always the same. It's we're, we're not necessarily in the business of teaching you precisely what the perfect strategy is for the environment that you're in. 
Instead, it's more of a step-by-step process that will allow you to ultimately get to more vision and clarity over any environment. Nice. So Matt Hunt and I just sort of like tied up the thesis to the seminar that we're working on. It's a mindset seminar, like above all else. And what we had to decide was like, are we going to actually scrutinize the type of methodology that these people are coming to us with? I didn't want to do that. I don't want to like be teaching strategy during the seminar. So what we decided was what's more important is that we can show a person where they're, where the way that they're constructing their strategy leans subjective. Mm -hmm. If I could, have you leave a two-day program with the capacity to be able to see where you start to use subjective reasoning when constructing your strategy. I've just given you the tool to be able to make whatever strategy you need to make to beat your particular environment. Right. All I basically have to teach you is how to gauge whether or not your assumptions are trending subjective. If you can develop a good radar for that, you can develop a methodology in any pool. That so you're playing in. So then strategically speaking, once you do recognize that you're too subjective in your decision-making process, what actionables can people take in order to construct a more objective strategy? This is where I go back to the main point, which is I don't think you can do much unless you have access to a lot of data, unless the market is so imbalanced that your intuition is going to be accurate enough to pay attention to. So, so I, think there, I think there are three realms. I think that there are mass data collection that you could take advantage of and exploit people but i think that that is uh difficult to come by and it's 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 obviously very reliable whenever you're good at data analysis it's very um unreliable if you aren't good at applying the layers of filter necessary in order to segregate the data appropriately and i would say it might not even be necessary to have data analysis if the market is imbalanced enough okay like if i played live poker my strategy would be I'm going to spend as much time as possible trying to exploit fish. There's more of them and they're easier to, it's easier to recognize where a fish's imbalances are than a reg because he's more imbalanced. I think you'd be surprised. So, okay, let's, let's do this then. I know that you didn't like to categorize things as fish or reg because when we try to make that distinction, it changes if we're looking at the live or the online environment. The average fish is worse in live poker and the average reg is also worse. Yeah, poker. like I, I don't want to like ruffle any feathers, but I think like there are big winners in mid stakes live no limit that are not very good. Okay, I think I'm actually one. Like I, I know for a fact my game does not translate online because a lot of my leaks and holes um, are less exploitable live by weak opponents. I would say if you weren't, if you didn't play a strategy that was going to transfer well from live to online Mm -hmm. all that would mean is that your strategy maps to the very imbalances of how fish and bad regs play in online do you understand what i'm saying yeah yeah, yeah, like for sure the the online regs that would now exploit you Mm -hmm. or whatever winning live player is going to underperform now in an online environment are exploiting you because you're choosing a strategy that they already have a a baseline methodology that the that performs well against your strategy right like they already just happen to be doing the thing that exploits you well it's not that they happen to be they they're doing it because their environment incentivizes it right they need to protect against other good players where what i'm saying is in a live environment if you took what you think to be one of the toughest 510 games around 
I don't think any of those guys would really hold much weight uh, in a 2-4 online stars game. Yeah, maybe they would just be like nits. At best. Or, 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 yeah, at best. I, I think like they would translate to maybe like break-even online guys. And all I'm basically wait or, or, or leaning on here is that it's just two totally different skill sets in accordance to what the environment but offers. But now I'm going to challenge you here to de- define what in general mm-hmm. makes that player who is a winning 5-10 reg now a break-even or a losing player. It's mechanics and technicalities, right? Because what happens in the live realm is... Uh, when mistakes occur by weaker players than yourself, they often occur for like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of big blinds. Uh, that's that's not really the online environment. It's it's rare that you're playing multiple hundred big blinds deep, um, and also just people don't overinvest, right? The the general imbalance of the live realm is the two extremes of overinvesting and underinvesting. So you get a lot of overfolding by those that are risk averse, and you get a lot of massive, massive overinvesting by those who are trying to run the environment over. So the way that the average reg gains his edge in live is being able to determine when he's up against someone who's risk averse or reckless. I think so, yeah. Okay, that's fair, because that's how the good reg in online makes his money too. Yeah. The difference is the ability to be able to objectively determine when someone's risk averse and when right. someone is reckless. Right. And I guess what I'm saying is while the live player might have a better chance at doing that by tracking game flow in a one table environment where mm-hmm. he's able to see everybody and like, you know, really pay attention to his opponents, the online player does that mainly by just looking at what the macro trends are and deploying against them without exception seeking, without Agreed. needing to accept. No, I agree. Seek. Like at the end of the day, if you're talking about carving out a lower variance uh, way of life that you're much more confident in being able to measure the returns and expect them regularly, online is certainly it. But I'm not even saying that. I guess what I'm saying is if we're going to distill it right down to what creates a winner in any environment, mm-hmm. I think it's as simple as saying, are you doing enough bluffing? And are you doing enough calling? Right. In a market that trends globally towards bluffing frequencies that are too high mm-hmm. and folding frequencies that are too high, the correct macro strategy is to look and see if a guy is bluffing enough and calling enough. Right. If he's doing those two things, it's very difficult that you're going to have a losing player. Yeah, I don't think we're debating any of that. We're only debating the methodologies of arriving at that conclusion. I guess my point is that and, and we're going to come back to, I guess, one of the thesis arguments from uh, when we were in Big Bear talking about this. We spent like three very long conversations arriving at the point where we think that the trends in the two departments that I just mentioned is the pool over bluffing and is the pool folding too much. You agree that one of those is true in live. Yeah. And if that's true, then the incentives of the market in live and online just shifted dramatically. If it, and to be fair, I agree that both are true in live. I just think there are different points of the decision tree. I think yeah. flop and turn get massively overbluffed and river massively underbluffed. You mentioned that that was so not to get back into that micro discussion, but the difference was that you think the river plays differently. Yes, yes. And that people are calling you think people still fold the river too much, but you think that they don't bluff enough in live. Correct. Where if you look at the online data, that's not true the online data shows that people are bluffing probably too often Mm -hmm. on the river once that difference occurs it's going to be very difficult for a live player to transition to online and win 
Agreed. And it's going to be difficult for an online player to translate to live and win. Agreed. That and that was where that was where we ended it. And I was happy with that conclusion. We we finally found a middle ground where we could both agree that like this is what's going on yeah ultimately it ended with me saying basically like tell me who you think is an absolute confirmed live crusher and i bet that they don't even come close to uh somebody that you would consider to be an average online winner and i would love to talk to somebody like that and that because there's few people who i think have a large enough sample to be able to be like a credible source in that regard where we could say hey how do you like this is the the key question asking a player who wins both online and live. And I mean like crushes, yeah, both yeah. online and live. Yep. How does your strategy shift in general mm-hmm. on the river when you're playing an online game or a live game? Yeah. If, I think the struggle is is that uh, the parallels will be a little bit closer. So like if you take a guy like Chris Kruk, he he's a killer in both realms, but he probably has never played small stakes or even mid stakes no limit live because he just chose online instead. Right, so whenever he shifts now from online into the live realm, he's playing like 100, 200, no limit, or he's playing big bet mix, or you know he's playing against a lot of his peers that are comparable in skill set, and the environment becomes a lot more stable. If you throw him into a 510 uncapped game, I'm not saying he's not a huge favorite. He certainly is, but I am saying that like he's probably leaving money on the table if he doesn't adjust his strategies in some capacity. For sure. So what I think we'll we can agree on is what makes a good player is someone who's able to transition from environment to environment and reassess the river incentive. Yeah. If I was going to just like simplify it, because I, w- I want to keep focusing on the river in this regard because it's, it's so just binary. where the biggest mistakes are. Yeah. That's so crazy because it really is so binary in nature. The, the greatest mistake should be when the game tree is more complex. Only if you're stacking off a lot of money in that zone. Like the reason that the river is the, the area where... The, yeah, the, the bets are the largest. Right. So, and the imbalances can potentially be the largest too if somebody has a massive overfold. Like, your, your favorite opponent to play if you play no limit poker is the guy who calls flop a lot, ter- calls flop a lot, calls turn a lot, folds river a ton. Yeah. The correct strategy is bet, bet, bet. Sure. And it doesn't matter like what the fucking texture is. Right. Once the river overfold becomes so substantial, we don't need to play this exception-seeking game of like, well, once I arrive at the river, I'm going to barrel off on only these ones and check only these ones. That's yep. just going to have you missing profitable bluffing opportunities versus an opponent like that. So again, like I don't want to make this too simple because I think you have to go through a lot of complexity before you arrive at simplicity again. But I do think that the most important question to be asking yourself as a poker player is, do I, under, do I understand the river incentives of the market or environment that I'm in? Yeah. If you can say that in general, the market overfolds the river, then you can look at your strategy and say, if I'm coming up with reasons to not bluff river more than 10 or 20% of spots, I'm probably seeking too many exceptions. Right. All this, uh, and again, like I, I want to speak for the live environment because I think that's the bulk of the audience. And I think that ultimately we're still leaving them hanging on a limb where we're effectively arriving at, well, there's no answer. No, there is an answer, but it requires that you introduce the dimension of time and meta in a one-table environment. The difference in live is people are actually, you would would think, and I don't have data proof for this, but like we would assume that the resilience of a strategy that just bluffs every time in a live one-table environment doesn't have much of a lifespan. Right. Like that would be- It's too observable. That would be the assumption is that like the moment that people see that you just don't give up at any sort of considerable rate on the river, their strategy shifts to just like, well, it's Nick. He's 
an agro fish, right. call all. Yeah. And at that point, like the market just shifted mm-hmm. from what your initial uh, estimate of it was. And now your strategy stops performing. Right. I agree. Unless you do what you do, which is like you have observed that they are now shifting and you're one step ahead of the shift. Right. And then you come back and clip them on the switch. Yeah. That is a skill that I guess would be what would create the best live poker player. Right. And I think to some degree, like if you were forced to one table online, you would see a lot of these things developing there as well. They would just kind of naturally have to once you begin to decrease volume, because now time is such a commodity and time is going to be such a, a relegating factor in how anybody's strategy deteriorates or shifts in any sort of capacity. Um Secondly, the I guess the parallel that I was trying to draw is why all of this occurs in live and not online necessarily. In online, even if you're battling in the small streets, uh, stakes as you're coming up, 25 cent, 50 cent, 50 cent a dollar, whatever, uh, as you begin to add more tables, you find yourself in these spots over and over and over again, and the environment is just going to naturally be slightly more aggressive, right? And this is going to lead to more proper bluffing and bluff catching frequencies. In live, when you start talking about entering the world at the one-two level, it's 100% across the board risk averse. People think it's a super volatile environment. The only thing volatile about it is the rake. It's so hard to beat. And the reason being is because, yes, people overinvest with weak hands too much in the sense that they uh, they bluff catch with, with bad candidates, but they're bad candidates for that particular environment because the aggressive tree is only learned through value. So people are entering this game with this fraction view of what poker is. And it's the hand ranking chart, right? It's one pair beats no pair, two pair beats one pair, uh, trips beat two pair, straights, whatever. And because of that, nobody ever even has any comprehension of a bluff tree. So when they bluff, they just accidentally fall into it of like, I want to throw good money after bad and see what happens. And now that progresses. So when you graduate out of the one-two, because you've made enough money or you're the strongest at making these decisions and observing, you trust that now in the two five realm. And further on down the line, this is why when we reach the uncapped level at 510, people who have like powered their way through with a very specific methodology of like being tight, um, you know, not bluff catching, always wanting to get it in a head, show up with the best hand, they get absolutely punished. Because now shit's going down. We're 500 blinds deep. People show up with suited two gappers sometimes. So the the shift there that's happening, if I'm understanding correctly, is a very straightforward, value-heavy, and sort of knit-based approach gets you to 510, but then it gets you crushed once you're at 510 because you think that the way that the market shifts at high stakes is people start bluffing a lot more. Yeah, well, I I think what it is is conservative investment strategies can get you there because you're not taking on much volatility or risk, and it allows you to build. However, the other people that got there were the best of the best with the aggressive strategies, right? So they're the ones who survived all the volatility, all of the the learning experience of seeing when environments are too tight, seeing what allows them to open up, and basically carving all these niche meta edges that aren't really easy to be uh, distilled down to data. I want to keep coming back to generalizing how to approach that evolution, no matter what environment you're in, because I think it's the thing that simplifies the conversation enough to actually make it to actually provide a practical takeaway to the listener which is that basically what we're saying is that as long as you can identify at any point whether or not the market is over bluffing and 
overfolding. Mm-hmm. So like you need to f- constantly come back to these two frequencies and figure out where the market's at. In general, how is the market responding to river bets? Are they overfolding or overcalling? And in general, how much is the market bluffing on rivers? Are right. they overbluffing or are they checking back and not bluffing enough? What you find when you look at online data is that the higher up you go, the more aggressive bluffing frequencies get. Makes it's sense. not dramatically no, it makes different, sense, but it trends more aggressive. Yep. And the folding frequencies on the other end, in other words, when I bet and someone has to respond to my bet, we don't see the same correlation from moving small stakes to high stakes. It's, it stays relatively similar. So mm-hmm. the risk aversion still plays. People right. are still overfolding even at high stakes. I'm not sure if that's what's going on in live. I, I can't prove it, but you think there's a different trend occurring in live. And, um, and that's why I think you're saying that you have to switch your strategy once you get to high stakes. Well, well, kind of. Uh, basically, what I'm kind of, or, or I guess what I'm insinuating is that um, you're able to draw these conclusions through data and you're seasoned enough and intelligent enough to be able to work that into your strategy as well as like your thought process, right? With a few exceptions, with sure. a few major exceptions. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what's happening in the live realm is they're never exposed to any of this, right? So they're from day one, um, almost certainly only going to be exposed to anecdotal evidence from start to finish, right? And that's going to manipulate people all the way through where only those who are best at parsing out the white noise uh, are going to be able to survive. Or those who are conservative enough to only take advantage of the weakest players in the pool, they'll also survive. And eventually we reach this crux where now what happens is I agree with you on the river is where you should start making all of your analytical uh, adjustments until you're very accurate. Right. And then working backwards. What I think happens though is um, in, in live rather than observing something, and then just saying like, okay, here's the counter to that. And I'm just going to do it. What we're forced to do is observe something and say like, okay, how, or, or sorry, why does that occur? So if the pool is trending over fold on river, why does that occur? And then how does that uh, also manifest itself in prior streets? And like largely what I think we'll find is, well, they overfold river because they're risk averse, but they're also risk averse on other streets. So um, if they're overfolding river, is it significant enough where I can just be like increasing my bluff frequency significantly? Mm-hmm. And that's where we have to like start to re-examine the turn. It's like, well, no, actually they're overfolding the turn too. But that's where I have to push back and say, how do you know that unless the imbalances is so gaping? Like in a live environment, we have to admit we don't have data mm-hmm. and we've arrived at an agreement up until this point where we both said that once the market becomes more balanced, your detections, your detective work as right. a live poker player becomes way less reliable. Right, right. It sounded like what you were saying was the reason that it's easier to play a conservative investment strategy and get to high stakes in the live environment is because there's worse players on average yes. moving up the stakes. I totally agree with yeah. that. And then once you do get to high stakes, now you're against up, you're against a lot of aggressive regs, and your strategy doesn't map well because you can't just wait for the fish to blow up anymore. Right. You're effectively against people who have survived. That doesn't make them strong players. No. Right now, I think what separates people are those who have landed at this point with a strategy that is solely based on subjective biases and running through that process and trying to make good decisions versus those who acknowledge that that's one element of their strategy, but they're also grounded in game theory. And that's why I think it's so critical to be able to understand baselines before you begin to deviate. 
and I think it's probably the thing most people are unaware that they're bad at is implementing a baseline that they've studied. Yeah. Like when you read the article that Kuhn put out, he's doing advanced shit, like like very advanced stuff that and not even on the technical spectrum, but like the fact that you would first have to identify how much you want to mix a certain hand. Mm-hmm. And have to be accurate about that number too. Right, right. That's a lot of sims that you got to collect the data from. Yeah. And if you're not good at that, you don't stand a chance. Right. If you're not well studied and you don't know how like this specific turn card interacts and changes the frequency at which you want to do X or Y with Even your that, I don't even think is the problem. I think the problem becomes more so like whenever you're looking at a range that consists of, you know, 126 hands and you actually have a functional mix for all of them. Like you don't really have many pure bets and, and pure checks out of that range now that becomes really complex because you're just going to constantly land yourself in a situation where it's like okay like i have to think back what are the properties of the hand? but i think he does a good job of going through it in the protocols right it's, he's he's top notch like world class that's yeah. not the debate the debate is whether or not that approach is going to be effective for someone who can't parse information objectively what about a simpler version of that approach that's where i think you have to go with it right but but uh, i think that like so maybe we're just saying the same thing it goes I, back to the recipe thing Find the two most important bullet points mm-hmm. in his 15 that net you 80% of the win rate. Right. And so, like, I would say kind of uh, not the opposite, but I, I would take it one step further, basically. I would say, like, come through his his bullet points and pick out the recipe that is most heavily incentivized both by theory and by exploits, right? So, in, in the particular example... Uh, I don't even remember what the example was, but let's just say, for example, on a board texture uh, of like 10, 9, 4, 2 hearts. Well, we want to be looking at hand attributes first and foremost, right? Is our hand suited? If it is suited, does it block or unblock potential draws? Is it connected? If yes, does it block, unblock, made hands, draws, etc.? And like once we go through that process, now all of a sudden we have like at least a concept to operate off of, right? This hand is going to be a good ca- uh, candidate to be aggressive with because of these properties. This hand is going to be a good hand to be passive with because of these properties. But all the while you're focusing on a, a theory-oriented approach here, correct? Um, I think it depends. Like, is this process being... Are you going through this process because you're putting a high emphasis on remaining balanced? Not, no. Not nearly as much as being able to employ a profitable strategy. See, I don't view those as separate things. That's the that, thing. That's fair. I, I guess uh, what I'm supposing is that I have a fair understanding of where my opponents make mistakes. I have an understanding that on board textures like Queen Jack Eight Two Diamonds, they're just too inelastic, and they're calling with too much eight x, and they're calling with uh, too much like naked ten x. I guess there isn't much naked. And what 10X, happens but... on the river to the range? Does it break and they end up overfolding, or do they? Because, and I'll keep coming back to this point, I think yeah. we can't lose this point. Right, right. If there is a substantial imbalance occurring on the river, mm-hmm. it makes it much less important how someone plays on the flop and turn. The only question is, like, if I find out you you overfold rivers 10%, right. it makes my flop and turn considerations way less useful. But we have to talk about, like, how does that 10% manifest itself, right? Do we, though? Yeah. Because if it's just happening, why does it matter how it happens? If, well, if it makes our strategy like i guarantee you well, because we need to be able to manipulate the the prior two streets in order to make it happen it can't just universally happen you know how you manipulate it you bet bet fucking bet river and they overfold yes i i, I understand and i agree with that if we know for uh like a fair uh with fair certainty that the overfold doesn't come earlier 
right? So like that's where I would basically be utilizing my best uh, ability to observe. If we have a board texture like Queen Jack Eight Two Diamonds, and I recognize that this person's range or all players' ranges are inelastic on the flop, and they just all uh, call somewhere between appropriately and too much, right? I, I'm going to start with a bet whenever I'm leaning value. Okay, so let's just start with that premise. If I secondarily recognize that that inelastic range also bets infrequently, now all of a sudden I kind of get to uh, start checking at a higher frequency with hands that I want to realize equity but don't necessarily want to invest. That's fair. So when it we, changes how you play your value. Right. If now you have we a land passive on read. Right. So now the inelasticity of their range on turn is really what's going to shift how my river decisions are going to be made. If I have a guy who's sticky and is just like always calling turn too often because he thinks there's so many cards he can rep on river, then I'm just going to take like a bet check call or, or sorry, a bet check line because I think now he does have a lot more bluffs available to him and he's probably going to pull the trigger too frequently. And if he doesn't, no harm, no foul. He's just going to check back. If I have somebody who's just like overfolding turn, now all of a sudden I have to change that cadence and I have to take a check turn bet river line. With your value. Yeah, effectively. Okay. Uh, I mean, assuming or, or just really with my polls. Right, like all of this is a recipe in depolarization. At the end of the day, right? Yeah, and I would say that the way, the reason that we're having a disagreement on how to operate up until the point of the river is all I'm really considering is how big is his river imbalance. I'll reverse engineer my strategy there in a very binary way. If someone's overfolding river a ton, I don't really care how he's playing his range on the flop and turn. the The node I want to funnel him into is where he invests a lot of money and then overfolds that river, which makes all my bluffs pretty easy. But like so if, this is where layering the data matters. Him arriving at the river at a high frequency is also very critical to this recipe. Let's do it this way. If you could hold every single node stable and node lock for this, mm -hmm. which you can run a sim that's like a simplified version of this, I guarantee you that if you lock a villain overfold on the river for anything substantial, like 5 to 10%, it's going to tell you to purify your bluffs towards bets on earlier streets as long as they were somewhat close. Oh, yeah, to you want to create a large pot to to That's not that complex. But but it's solving backwards where if you if you node lock them to be overfolding river at X percent, the the solver will make sure that a range gets there that can overfold. Right? So it'll ensure that no matter what action you take up until that point. It's arriving at the river with a range of hands that is going to fold five or ten percent too much. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm starting from the assumption that says that we already know how big the river overfold is, and you're starting from an assumption where you're not sure how big it's going to be, which is why you're more concerned with trying to figure out how their range is operating on flop and in turn. live. Yeah, I, I would say uh, that's true because I don't think all boards are, are created equally. Okay, and so here this is like the full circle point is that if I gave you live data, if I could somehow get it. Mm -hmm. And it said they're overfolding river by a very large amount across the aggregate, across yep. all textures. Yep. It would become very ineffective for you to start exception seeking against that trend. I wouldn't need to exception seek. Uh, but but what I'm saying is that um, it sounds like what you're saying is that I need to know, is... I need to know what is allowing them to overfold. So I need to know what the average strategy is. Because if I go two x pot, two x pot, and land on river, they're not overfolding. All right, anymore. that's fair. But that's an extreme line. If I just, sure, but if there I just are a gave lot you, of people who don't know what proper strategies are for flop and turn. But if I gave you data that said people are overfolding river 10%, and then you came back and you said, but that doesn't account for what bet sizes are being used on flop and turn. I'm saying it kind of does because it's the average 
of everything occurring. Right, but that means I need to employ the average line. Right, and what I'm saying is it's very unlikely that you're going to do something so not average that that overfold suddenly becomes And this is where I'm saying the big divide is between online and live because online standard strategies are protocol even for the weaker players. What would you have to do to make someone no longer overfold by 10% on the river? You would have to like shrink that range so much pre-river by using like massive bet sizes. Yeah. That suddenly either that wasn't massive, active anymore. E- either through massive bet sizes or shrink the pot size so that suddenly you're arriving at river and it's negligible, right? So like you could just be doing way too much checking on flop and turn. And now all of a sudden, like you're both landing with too many hands on the river. And now when you're betting at high frequency for a large number from a non-polar range, you just get called at high frequency. That's not going to happen because the main thing that dictates whether or not someone's overfolding the river is how how wide the range is originally like this is why we see just in lines where there's not three bets post flop the reason that the pool overfolds more is the same reason that they overbluff more when they're in a late formation position right they have too many hands i understand too many hands yeah so you can't just make an argument that says like well if we both take a street of betting out of the game we're both going to arrive at the river with a wide range and now he's going to know i have a wide range and now suddenly he's going to call more. it's not that he's going to know it's that the pot is going to be significantly smaller and he's going to be able to speculate a lot more with hands that he might otherwise fold just realize that that's a huge assumption if you want to make that assumption and say that's how live poker operates that makes okay your argument stable but uh, that is a very but let's 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 run the inverse let's say that um we take your data and we just run uh, check downs to the river. Do you think it's still going to perform at the same frequency? You're going to find that they overfold massively the fewer bets are that are put in post-flop, as long as ranges are just like, you know, as long as it's not yeah. like a call-for bet pot. Right, right, and maybe right. even I- right. if it is. But you probably earn a lot less. What I'm focused on is how big that river overfold is. I'll keep coming back to that point. Sure. Because at the moment that I have aggregate data that says regardless of texture, there are very few exceptions to when the opponent overfolds river. Then I have a very simple strategy that I can implement from that point on, which is get to the river and bluff. Now, the only way that doesn't work is if we introduce the dimension of time and resilience and someone observes you enough and says, this guy's just playing like a lights out exploitative strategy. I have to start countering him. Mm -hmm. He's wicked imbalanced on the river by bluffing too much. And that's, I think, where the divide is between live poker and online poker especially if you're in a semi-anonymous online environment. Sure. You just can keep implementing the same baseline exploit strategy, whereas a live player might have to become more self-aware, I guess. But now here's the dangerous part is if you give someone a recommendation to become more self-aware and start just trying to like navigate river on feel in a live environment based on what information exchange has already occurred, now you're giving them a green light to start trending into a very subjective territory. And I'm not ready to give that permission to people who haven't already demonstrated that they, that they can parse information in an objective way. I, I think that's totally fair. And I think that's ultimately what separates the the great from the good, the good from the average. Um, but I also think that like, you know, a big thing that we haven't been talking about that, you know, you've been leaning a lot more into lately and something I've always been passionate about is mental game. And, uh, you know, when we're when we're in this live environment, we don't need to be as accurate as you do online. You're pumping these decision points out at a, a mass volume and i know that that would kind of intuitively suggest that like oh well, i don't need to be as accurate but that's not true the more inaccurate you are the more that's going to show up in your bottom line right so there's a huge difference between 98 percent accuracy and 90 percent accuracy etc in the live realm 
because of the 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 vast nature in how mistakes are being made and because um it's kind of a spectrum where the entire field as a whole is just making pretty egregious errors even the good players what ultimately happens is it's just an exchange of ev and now it's not a matter of uh how accurate you are it's a matter of how accurate you are compared to counter strategies Right, so if you're operating at eighty percent accuracy, but the field as a whole is operating at fifty. And by accuracy here, you mean like how close you are to a theoretically optimal strategy, or how close you are to the max exploit strategy versus your opponent at any given time. Um, let's go with theory optimal because okay. I think that that's a much a much more uh, reasonable place to come from. Okay. Um, although I, I think you could probably make a better argument for max exploitative because the the reasonable players now let, let's stick with theory optimal because i think the best players in the game have a concept of what baseline is and are deviating off of that with reason right uh whether that reason is right or wrong and you could make a counter argument saying that like oh by deviating you're diluting your actual return um i think it's imperative because it's so opportunistic right like you're only going to get to play against this drunk guy this one time for this amount of hours and it's critical that you win all of his money so that would require you to be very accurate versus him in that moment. No, like, no, no, not necessarily. Not, not if we're saying accurate in terms of getting close to GTO, but if we are saying accurate in terms of picking the right strategic option at any given time, mm -hmm. like we need to just make a uh, distinction uh, between those right, two Right, what terms. I'm saying is that the gap between our accuracy is so vast that uh, there's room for us to make errors and know that that EV is still going to get put back into the pool, right? So as long as he doesn't rack up and leave... Uh, that's fair that's fair but i would say that in any given one in any given in any given hand the accuracy that you have up for grabs when you're up against a fish mm -hmm. like that's a very important moment in any given hand because there's so much win rate on the line when the fish right. is like bluffing river by 18 percent too frequently yeah so to make a mistake in that spot is far more damaging than to make a mistake in an online zone Unless your argument is, but the fish is going to stay at the table as long as he doesn't rack up and leave, I'm going to get another opportunity. Well, that is my argument because if you're making the mistake online, you're just repetitively making it. So you're just doing it blindly. You don't recognize that it's a mistake. Against a fish, you could potentially overfold. He tables his hand, laughs his belly off, and you just snap adjust, right? And like, it, it really is this meta game of- Because you didn't know he was a fish yet? Or because you didn't know he was capable of being fishy that way, right? Like, not all- fish come in every shape and size right some are going to under bluff some are going to over bluff. this is another point we disagree on that we talked about um in one of the conversations of the three that we had an online player would never make that mistake and i'm not saying that it's a mistake in live i'm saying i don't know because i don't have the data but i'm very skeptical of a position that says that not all fish are created equal and i know that's a sweeping generalization but like sure i would never advocate that an online player fold exploitatively against a fish in a river spot like if i had to give one simple heuristic to an online player call versus fish it's almost the exact opposite live there are so many guys that like you'll table really big hands against because so you've said and all i would say there is we don't have to have that discussion of whether or not whether or not that's true the discussion we need to have is how important that is to a person who's constructing their methodology about to deploy in that environment. Mm -hmm. If we have a different opinion on how a fish plays the river, 
it's going to matter more than anything else versus our win rate to determine our win rate versus that fish. Yeah, I agree. Like more than any other baseline heuristic that we could look at, it's going to be all about are you getting to rivers and playing accurately against the actual frequencies of that fish. Yeah. The guy who makes mistakes and folds too frequently versus a fish who's bluffing too much is going to get ruined. The guy who calls too much versus a, free, versus a fish who over bluffs is going to destroy the fish. Right. But I, I think that that's, I think that's effectively what it distills down to. It's like, it's very difficult to over bluff simplistic spots in live. So I guess my final point full circle is that as long as we can agree that the most important thing is whether or not you have the environment accurately mapped on the river. Mm -hmm. As long as we can get there and say, that's going to dictate the bottom line of a reg. Yeah. Probably more than anything else, unless he's playing egregiously pre-river. No, I totally Which agree. is hard to do because there's so many mixed strategies pre-river that it's hard to make a big mistake. Especially since... There's a lot... There's I, I think there's a lot of uh, edge that could be garnered pre Equity is running closer, though, pre-river. Right, right, right. But what I'm saying is like the compounding methodology of it. So like, yeah, I agree with your river uh, analysis. But I think that a lot of good players are able to drastically increase that river bottom line through decisions they're making earlier. They're hyper aggressive pre-flop or they have a mixed strategy C betting or whatever. Basically they complicate the counter so much and people are just so used to being on cruise control. And I think that's one big thing uh, going again back to mindset mm -hmm. is that you have to remember how emotional the, uh, the live environment is, right? Especially the weaker minded players. They're very much fueled by emotion and are operating off of everything that's happened up until this point. And it really is kind of like a, a, a storybook where you can begin to anticipate some of how the errors will expand, right? Uh, and then also just like how the errors will start to disappear if they have a lot of things going for them. If they're risk averse and they're winning, a lot of times like the errors will shift now in a way such that they're just like too conservative in spots with really good hands. And that will just result in them like getting less value for their hand or whatever the case may be. And it's what makes them fish. In the simplest way, I think what you're saying is risk averse players are going to stay risk averse. Yeah. Reckless players are going to stay reckless. Right. There's very few environmental variables that are going to turn a risk averse player into a calling. Station. Right. It's just the spectrum that, that they're going to be on. So I guess all I'm saying is the reason a GTO methodology or pseudo gto methodology fails when you filter it through the mental imbalance of either of these two archetypes the risk the risk averse guy or the reckless guy is that when the risk averse guy thinks that he's randomizing a call at 30 mm percent -hmm. he's probably folding more than he thinks right so like you can get there or originally it seems like well this should work i know the frequency i'm supposed to do this at but unless you're actually rolling like with an RNG mm -hmm. and and hitting that button and saying like, it falls within this 30% this time, I'm going to call. What will happen is the risk averse player will say that he's going to make the stand 30% of the time. But when the when the moment actually comes, he'll be like, no, nah, I'm going to wait till next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah for Th sure. This happens for constantly. Sure. 100%. So it's, I think one of the major things that uh, players are unconscious of when they adopt a pseudo GTO strategy is that unless you're being very, very strict on how your RNG manipulation is allowing you to implement that exact strategy. And unless you've studied a shitload of sims, so you even know what frequencies you're supposed to randomize, you're likely just filtering your pseudo GTO methodology through your mental imbalance. Right. 
So like you can think that you're super well balanced, but you're just gonna be folding too much if you're someone who has risk averse tendencies. Yeah, and I think or, like or, the, or vice versa. Yeah, and I think like bringing it uh, full circle again, it's like that's why I I believe that we do kind of agree whenever it comes to river decisions is that when I say there's more room for margin of error in in the live realm, what I'm kind of referring to is exactly that. You don't need to be nearly as precise with your mixes. You can get away with a lot of pseudo balance where you're actually implementing some pure strategies with certain hands that present themselves as a bit of a mix. And all of this is predicated on the fact that you know you're going to make better river decisions than I'm okay the opposition with that. you're up against. I'm okay with that. And the part that we disagree on is that I would argue that it's so much more important to play river very, very accurately in an environment where there's so much win rate up for grabs on the river. I agree with you there. The, the more imbalanced the... I'm saying the, I'm saying the inaccuracies early are due to the fact that we understand we're operating really accurately on rivers. Yeah, they're acceptable uh, over the aggregate. because you're going to recoup on the river. Yes. But the moment that a live reg overfolds to a river who to a river node where a fish was actually bluffing 20% too frequently, mm -hmm. that's disastrous. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So it's important that we actually have that part of the game tree accurately mapped and that's the only thing that I really ever I agree, but took you're talking about with. on the aggregate, not not in an isolated incident. The Mistakes are going to occur in isolation. Sure, but if the aggregate is super imbalanced in one direction, mm -hmm. then we should not be seeking exceptions to what the aggregate is incentivizing. No, I which, agree. Which makes it very easy for us to implement a accurate strategy. Right. Now, will we make certain mistakes a small percentage of the time versus a profile who was not actually mapped accurately against the pool? Sure, but in general, if I give someone a simple heuristic of how to exploit a spot that gets massively overbluffed by the pool. The answer is call every time. And that methodology is going to perform more accurately than someone who's exception seeking. So all I'm saying is that... I don't think you see good players exception seek though. Oh, dude. Good players probably exception seek more than bad players because they're so jacked up on having control over their strategy. I would say that that makes them not good though. Like... I, 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 would, I would say that's fair. Yeah. But, the see this is a difficult you're talking about two different things at once we're talking about what makes a good player good and what happens to a good player when he's tilted well it's also where are you taking the exception from right because if you're talking about exception seeking from from theory then i think that is what makes them good i'm talking about exception seeking against what the best option is versus the way that the market is trending right but so again exploited, like, exploited uh, right but again uh, that that comes with a, a cloak of information that everybody doesn't have viable to them. i understand but that doesn't make it less important i agree just because we don't know what I, I guess what i'm saying we're saying two different things in the sense that i'm saying i don't think good players exception seek because i'm coming from a realm where they don't have much to deviate from other than theory and those exceptions, I think, are probably pretty profitable for the people who are good in the environment. The but people the, who can detect who the very imbalanced players are yeah, in the environment. Yeah, the ones that are taking exceptions, I think, are probably pretty fucking good at it. Like, a guy like Garrett comes to mind. You know, when he when he deviates and folds the second nuts on the river versus a guy who he just really thinks has zero bluffs, he's right. And it, it was demonstrated that way, right? Um, but, like, in your realm, if you just hammer into some kid's head, hey... Call Rivermore. They're they're over bluffing you, mm. and he just like keeps demonstrating hand history after hand history after hand history of like why he didn't do it here, why he didn't do it there. That's a mental breakdown. Sure. So I think all that's really being concluded here is that it is more important to seek exceptions 
from a pseudo GTO strategy as the market becomes more imbalanced. Yes. Otherwise you're just leaving clear edge on the table. Yep. So going back full circle to the moment I would stop playing live is when I lost confidence that the market was so imbalanced that I was able to use intuition to detect the bulk of those imbalances. Yep. And I lose confidence in my observational capacity way sooner than you do. Fair. That, that was the gist of our entire discussion was like, yeah, I, you're I think comfortable making intuitive calls well, the reason for being way is longer before you quit the, the market. Re- the reason being is that in order for the imbalance to be programmed out of the environment, a new layer of information needs to be added. And right now we're seeing that being the study of game theory, which is helpful, but uh, you can negate that in a lot of ways by also being studied in game theory. And nobody's implementing perfect strategies by any stretch of the imagination. So the reality is that the imbalances stay pretty consistent with you know maybe one or two exceptions that you'll run into where a kid is playing, you know, or I shouldn't say a kid, but like a, a strong player presents itself in the environment where it's just like, he's unwavering, man. He really does have a pretty balanced strategy here and I'm just gonna be pretty neutral EV against him. I'm on board with everything except what a, what was alarming to me was that we had a radically different perception of how a very common river spot was occur- was being bluffed. Yeah. So in the your argument was fish don't overbluff rivers in live poker. Right. On the aggregate. Right. That's the exact opposite of what's true in online and it's not even close. Right. Well, I also said that I think it's a different qualifier of what a fish is. So basically what I was saying is that it's not a one-to-one correlation. If we looked at what a fish was considered to be on the aggregate in online, I would say that they're probably break even or small losers. Like we would consider them to be a reg in live. Okay, so let's do it this way so we can have a stable variable. I'll classify a fish for the sake of the argument as a player who loses at negative 30 BB per 100 online or above. Now that doesn't have anything to do with putting limitations on his stylistic tendencies. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about win rate. Okay. Would you say that a negative 30 BB loser or greater in live is a radically different player than a negative 30 BB loser player in in online yes okay yeah. and, and that's what you have to say in order for your argument to remain logically consistent that's the only thing i want but, to point out yeah but like to be fair like i wasn't even thinking of it in terms of how i can game the argument it was just like thinking in my mind of who could possibly lose that much per hundred i i mean you're talking like really atrocious players so it would have to be somebody who either bluffs the river way too much calls way too much like they're either way Sorry. too reckless on rivers or they're way too risk averse. Way just too in risk, general. Way too risk averse on rivers. Way too uh, call happy prior streets. And I mean, I could name names. Like just just go through the businessmen pool, right? They're calling with offsuit aces pre flop. They're floating offsuit ace x post flop. They're turning bottom pair on the turn. They're calling again, and they're just always folding river. And that's just like way too specific. But you know that archetype is what games are built around. So that would explain why we have a different perception of this because if i had to go play live tomorrow not knowing anything about the pool not having played live for 10 15 years and yep. being able to examine these archetypes and, mm-hmm. and really study them i would not have a reason to start from a premise that i should be doing things massively differently you want to know what's, versus a really losing player you want to know what's fascinating to me uh what you're describing is what regs are afraid of so that that archetype exists in live that is over bluffing river 10 or 20 percent 
that you just need to increase your call frequency against. They're perceived to be regs, right? It's it's why games won't run past two five no limit. So you're saying that it's the fish in a live environment that do the underbluffing on the river. Yes. And the regs that you would consider a fish online are the ones that are like feared because they're over bluffing river. Because no one wants to leave that conservative strategic realm where they can just comfortably know when a hand is good and get paid off. That's that's the entire premise of live poker. Let me go make good hands and reap EV. Because Old man coffee type paradigm. To the extreme. That yes. would be the extreme market. That would be the extreme. But I think that there is a mass, mass amount of regs who literally think they have the control to show up to a live game and start folding ace queen on a queen high board because they just know when it's not good and start calling with, you know, or, or, or make all their money through sets and straights and flushes. Like, I think that this might represent like, I don't know, something in the neighborhood of half the winners in live poker. Yeah, that's a lot. And that's, that is alarming and fascinating to me. And well, also, I think- also understand when I say the winners, I mean, currently. Because we're talking about time as the construct now instead of volume of hands. None of those players will exist five years from now. They'll just constantly go down the tier until either they get stronger and become a good reg or they just keep diluting down until they're a fish. So you're basically saying that the majority of the winning regs at any given time in a pool are just sun running. Yes. I mean, I don't know how to quantify that, but I know that you know that's true to some extent. Well, here, here's another good way to understand it. I have a 17-year career now, and somebody asked me how many live hands they think I've played in my life. And I said, assuredly, sub 500K. So your entire career could be a sun run, hypothetically. You'll hypothetically. never know. I think time makes it very difficult for that to be the case, right? Because I had to maintain proper bankroll for 16 years. And that's just very difficult to do if you're not actually uh, making plus EV decisions both on and off the felt. So there's another dimension to your skill set in that sense. To, to all live people, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And that's the mindset department of yes, it. Yes, yeah. That's why I anchor so much back to mindset because unfortunately we are in this, you know, kind of people game where time is the ultimate dictator as to like who's going to profit the most from these these really good situations. And live poker is like flourishing. Maybe not in the sense of people are showing up in droves to play, but in the sense that it's a dinosaur, man. It's it's just staying so stagnant and nobody's interested in getting better. Okay, so let's close with this because this will be fun and it'll it'll actually provide max win rate for the listener. We've gone through a lot of motions kind of examining how we would construct a strategy given our assumptions of how the market is operating. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give my version of how a small stakes player should generally devise his strategy okay at small stakes mid stakes and high stakes okay for an online pool and then i want you to do it perfect for a live let's do it you go first actually oh man that's not going to change my argument i know it's not going to change your argument but it's going to sound so much worse when you rebut but but, but simplify yeah so should they i'll do i'll I'll just do straight up questions actually let's do it this way Let, let me let me give what i think is a proper low stakes strategy so like one two two five and then you do the same for online. Okay, okay. We'll just go back and forth. Okay, cool. All right, All right so I think that in uh, low stake environments, two five and below, uh, let's say two five hundred big blind cap and below, because I think there's a diff- I, I think that's the pivot point, right? Um, when you're talking about hundred big blind games and below, I think ultimately what you see is uh, ranges are bounded across the board, so they're just effectively devoid of bluffs due to the nature of um, shallow stacks and a misunderstanding of how to polarize. 
So they just fall into polarization because they just keep funneling towards having the best hand. Due to that, I think that you get to bluff a lot on early streets and very little on late streets. But this is very problematic because when your bluffs succeed early, you win small pots. And when they fail, you now lose big pots later. And I think this is what ultimately encourages people to be more risk averse. So really what those stake level strategies, I think, uh, should be comprised mostly of is getting your fundamentals down, understanding uh, polarization, and when to very selectively choose the best bluffing candidates. Because overfolds will occur to the point where I think like second nuts and third nuts will get mucked on the river if you're choosing the proper candidates. So a lot of small ball aggression on early streets yep. and a lot of attention to really getting your value thresholds down on later streets. Correct. And you're saying that there's a lot of times where you probably shouldn't be value betting nearly as thin as you think. Right. So what that distills down to is the pool on average would be overfolding river. Yes. Okay. Small stakes strategy for an efficient online ascension to high stakes. Call a lot versus regs. Call a lot versus fish. Bluff a lot versus regs. Bluff a lot versus fish. Use multiple street aggression when you're bluffing because there's not a big enough imbalance on any given street to counteract how much you're going to scoop on the river when they overfold by five to ten percent which, right. which happens in, in quite a, a lot of zones mm-hmm. um so it would just be like very very simple and mine doesn't change mine doesn't change all the way up to high stakes okay the, and i'm getting there by saying that we've examined how the market shifts from small stakes to high stakes and the the trend is that they're doing a little bit more the aggression rates go up at high stakes. The overfolds still occur. Yeah. But the small stakes players were already bluffing enough at small stakes sure. that it doesn't mean that you should be folding at small stakes. And we kind of touched on like, this earlier where I think like people just come in with a different set of skills. So live to me is literally uh, the, the K through 12 education process. If the small stakes are like kindergarten through third grade, you know, now that you get into, or maybe more like kindergarten through sixth grade, now you get into junior high whenever you're talking about the mid stakes. So this is going to be like deep stacked to five, uh, all the way up to like, let's say deep stacked five ten, uh, and then relegate all uncapped games for high stakes. Cause I think something crazy occurs when you go from a two or 300 big blind cap in a five ten game to an uncapped game. Games get more aggressive uncapped games, get more, uh, they just, they get larger, right? Um, there's less consideration for early street decisions whenever you fall into the uncapped category. And um, people are basically playing for a large river edge. A lot, of, a lot of EV is leaked in the early streets in order to uh, recoup a lot of it on the end. Okay. So I think whenever you get into the mid stakes realm, uh, the way that your natural um, strategy is going to mature is now you get to, add in a linear range. So now all of a sudden, uh, I think we start to get opening more hands. We get to start three betting uh, linear instead of just strictly through polarization lens. And largely all we're really focusing on at this level is isolation. I think that this is the stage where, uh, you know, effectively you want to be the one who is navigating through the aggressive tree. I think the environment as a whole is still under bluffing pretty greatly. So really it's just a... Um, it's like a manifestation of staying aggressive until they counterpunch and then immediately exit the hand. That seems to be the major difference in how we think the two 
markets are operating is that the online realm, the data indicates that like there isn't enough of a switch happening from flop to turn right. to river in terms of the imbalance that the pool is well, operating Well, this is from. very easily conveyed, right? What do you think on average the four bet frequency is at small stakes online? It's not aggressive enough. Okay. Uh, what do you think it is in mid stakes? Slightly more aggressive. Okay. What do you think it is in high stakes? Substantially more aggressive than small stakes. Pretty close stakes. to optimal, right? I don't know. But okay. yeah, it's definitely like not okay, so wildly there, there, passive. There, there's a stepping process and it's it's relatively clear. Trends towards more aggro, towards high stakes. Would you say there are four bets that are non-nuts in small stakes? It's more rare to see somebody take a linear four bet strategy. But we the, see more than just kings and aces. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I mean, yeah. This, this is the easiest way to convey the parallels because at both small stakes and mid stakes, you probably will be... You won't really see uh, a four bet come through with anything but kings and aces in small stakes. And then whenever you get into mid stakes, it'll expand to like queens and ace king. You just almost certainly won't ever see that bottom of range. Unless like it's a really good player or the stacks are re re relatively deep. Once we start getting into uncapped games, it changes drastically. And how does that make it more difficult for you to navigate an uncapped it's game. not that it makes it more difficult it's it, i'm trying to demonstrate that there's a bigger change street by street in the live realm than what you see online they're already trending towards good mechanics online just the fact that they have four bets that are not nutted is already trending in the proper street makes them direction. more balanced right yeah, yeah you don't really see that live so you're seeing like these weird adjustments street by street that seem to be inconsistent with uh, what what would make sense um, down an erroneous strategic path, right? So if somebody is just too aggressive in their strategic path, there should be tendencies that we should be able to recognize that your data demonstrates. Uh, same thing if they're too passive. In live, they're literally operating on the turn of a card. So like they're just so erratic in the way that they street, change street by street. And the only thing that remains consistent or remains consistent is that they are 100% risk averse. The whole way through? The whole way through. Okay. So lesser, obviously lesser so street by street, right? Pre-flop, they're more risk-taking. They'll play too many hands. And this is why you're saying pepper aggression until you get pushed back at it yeah. and then give up. Yeah. Okay. So the major difference then between how you would navigate a high-stakes live environment versus small-stakes live environment mm -hmm. in terms of how willing you were to call river bets. Let's yep. do it that way okay. first. That's fine. More or less willing to call river bets at high stakes or small stakes in a live environment? Uh, high stakes, not even close. So you're calling way more in high stakes. Way and in more. terms of bluffing, are you still exploitatively bluffing in both realms on rivers when you have the, the aggressive lead? Less so in high stakes. Okay, so you'd be more willing to bluff a small stakes live player. Yeah. And do you think that it gets close enough at high stakes where you actually have to pay attention to picking spots very selectively. Like do the imbalances trim I, I, up quite a bit in terms of the risk aversion present at high they're stakes? They're less obvious. I think that the imbalances are still there, but it's less predictable in nature. So you could just kind of have to trend towards theory. Okay. And I would say for, a lot, for online, if you can maintain a vacuum image mm -hmm. in, in terms of like not having your image get overexposed sure so maintain your resilience and your strategy you can continue just like pulling a lot of aggressive triggers mm -hmm. you need to become more selective 
as you build a sample with an opponent because people are better at tracking information exchange and picking correct counters. Right. But I would still say uh, over-aggressing is going to be superior in a high-stakes online environment and calling too much is going to remain su- superior in a, from small stakes to high stakes. Right, right, right. Um, so it's weird. It's like I don't think a, a small stakes player really sacrifices all that much to adopt a very simple strategy that scales him to high stakes. It's the same the entire way through. And then yeah. we can have the conversation of you know what needs to change in order for us to get way more balanced if we want to make it to nosebleeds. But the entire point that I want to make clear to someone who's reading a nosebleed article is that it's very unlikely that that's the most efficient plan for you to implement at the stage that you're at yeah yeah i agree and maybe honestly maybe this is why the whole conversation is the way it is like the tone of the community where so many people feel entitled to what the high stakes regs have where it's just like oh well the only thing separating me from him is money maybe that's a little bit more true in the online environment where you know there are essentially killers by comparison to live realm so do you think that 50 cent do you think that something like what coon put out is widely accessible in terms of like just generally how his decision tree works Uh, or maybe you could even say like the fact that everybody has access to po solver makes them feel like there's no gap i could run that sim and exactly i could run that sim if i wanted to people think that they all distill information down the exact same way uh, Jason's article really resonated with me because it outlined effectively what my decision-making process has been for years, even pre-PO, right? The only difference is PO allowed me to better understand why I put so much value in certain attributes, right? Um, so it was nice. It was like, okay, well, this is a clear a, a clear outline of why I think the way I think and what is the way I think. But I also put a lot of value in that of like, oh, well, that's what makes me good. And most other people aren't doing this and can't do this so the ability to parse information in an objective way when trying to filter it through a complex methodology mm-hmm. is the separate is the key separator in what makes somebody really good i mean it has to be true that that's not available to everyone so let's just say this then if, if that's the argument then your strategy should only become more complex as you prove the ability to parse information in an objective way yeah Using and, a simpler methodology. And you know, shockingly, who I think gets this very well is the live guy. There He's are, just not willing to make things more complex. There are a lot of live guys who are just beating 510, 200 big blind cap for $150 an hour that never want to play bigger. And I would say they're doing so because they actually recognize that there are enough fish for them to be able to just make a, a living in a simple way like that. The, the problem with that guy is, though, he doesn't adapt. Because he found a methodology that he has proven to be consistently profitable. Uh, when the environment around him changes, he pushes back. And that's right? why he won't play high stakes. Not only, is it not, not only is it why he won't play high stakes, it's why he'll be playing 2-5 18 months from now. Because you think that the games are going to get better and they're going to push him back down. They just get different. right? The things that he was doing that allowed him to uh, recoup all the EV from weaker players now doesn't work because they have adjusted the way that they fail, right? Like they're, they're, they're mimickers, man. They're, they're- okay, so let's close on this. How much do you think the market has changed in terms of like this, keeping with the overarching, how do people operate on rivers? Mm-hmm. Do you think the live market has seen noticeable shifts 
in the last five years only, in terms of how risk averse people are. Only in the amount of rivers that are being seen and the methodology through which they arrive at rivers. So, But reduce that down to are people still risk averse? Yes. Okay. Yes. The, 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 the tendencies have trended the same. The mechanics look very different. So pots are a lot smaller on river than they used to be. Um, people's temperament for large bets uh, are becoming a lot more acceptable. So in the past, an overbet would just work, you know, maybe almost always, unless you had complete clairvoyance over your opponent's hand and you just knew he was a pit below and you could just like bet infinite and get called. Um, that has kind of changed. You're seeing uh, bluff catching just occur kind of like with no resistance towards the sizing. Mm. And that's a weird thing to see happen in a risk averse environment, right? Because like the concept was the risk was the, the money factor, but it's actually not. It's the comfortableness with the strength of hand. Yeah, you and Shin talk about this a lot, that it's almost like people aren't even really looking at bet size. Right. Which is why you can do some pretty exploitative stuff in live that you probably couldn't get away with in online. Yeah. Particularly because the size of the pot is like actually visible in an online realm too. Like right. a lot of these guys probably don't even know what the pot size is within right. like 25% accuracy in live. Like the worst players, I would guess, constantly lose track of the pot. Yeah. So all they're really looking at is, does the river bet that I'm facing feel big or right. small? Which right. just leads like a ton of room to exploit somebody with bet size. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm glad that we got to the to the real point of it, which is again not trying to tell anybody necessarily how to construct a strategy, but trying to expose how important it is to be able to determine which way the market is leaning yeah. before you do decide to construct your strategy. Yeah. Because if you're not starting from that baseline, then I just don't know how we can have a logically consistent conversation. And the like, irony is I'm, I'm probably coming from a totally different angle where what I'm saying to the live realm is uh, stop putting so much value in your subjective reasoning of understanding what the market's doing. You're wrong, right? Because you're part of the market. Like you're it, just projecting your own yeah. weakness. It takes onto the a market. lot of reps, a lot of going broke yourself, a lot of comprehension of human psyche to really be able to say with confidence, I see that the live market is trending this way, that or the other. And the fact of the matter is I'm also wrong to a degree of inaccuracy. Right. right? Because even if you're a huge winner, you don't necessarily know what part of your exactly. psyche is like not accurate. Exactly. The best thing that live players can do is not study a billion sims but instead understand uh what allows the sim to be accurate right understand the attributes that po uh puts emphasis on on particular textures understand how evs divide like recognize that on queen 10 8 two hearts we're running neutral against a flat call range in position as opposed to just thinking like oh well i opened under the gun i have massive range advantage here i just get to go off you know what i mean like these are these are huge errors mm. that uh are, are largely misunderstood so if you can grapple with baseline game theory and uh then allow yourself to enter the environment with uh, an open mind and recognize where it's profitable to move away and where it's profitable to stay the line i i think that like you know the win rate available is just infinite the main thing i'm taking from that is that it is almost Always, it's always going to be important, no matter how live, no matter how long live poker is around, mm -hmm. that you trust your ability to parse nuanced information yeah. in order to seek exceptions. Yeah. 
because we don't have stable metrics for how the pool is operating in the aggregate. Right. So it's constantly going to be about whether or not you trust that this particular player is either bluffing too much or folding too much in this spot. And you're relying mostly on meta in an alive environment. Yeah. To and that's why I that. said, that's why I said it's, it's tough because we can't really define a mistake. People need to go a lot easier on themselves. If, if the mistake isn't necessarily mechanical, right? Like if, if you were getting laid the right price and you folded your hand, that's an error. If you were getting laid the wrong price and you called with your hand, that's an error, right? Mm. Those are things that we can see. But if you make a correct pot odds call on the end and get shown a better hand, like that's not what is defined as an error. Right, right. And I think people just spend a lot of time reverse engineering how I got to this point where I lost a 400 big blind pot. And they're too willing to change their strategy yeah. based on confirmation what could I have done? What, what could I have done differently? We said we weren't gonna go this long, but we managed to do it. Poor Conrad, man, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. All right, that's that's gonna wrap it. Uh, the alarm's going off. We've gone way too far. Um, just a quick reminder: if you haven't already, take advantage of the free month. You know, we're we're just giving this shit away on the vlogcast. Uh, you may as well go sign up to the training site tv.solveforyacademy.com. Use the sign up code uh, S4YGIFT, and you'll get one month free. Offer expires December 31st. Nick, thanks guys. Live really scares. Like, one thing I'm taking from this is like I will never be a live player. It just scares the shit out of me to imagine going into a market where I'm not sure how to eventually determine how it maps. What if you could win 10x what you're making now? If I did that, I think it would be the product of me being able to determine in general what the imbalance. What if was. you could 10x your bottom line, but in in response you had to lose 30% of your sanity? I would take it. Okay. Well, that's that, where I'm at. <laughs> but the, so just to close on this, I think the most important thing is that like the reason that live is able to be navigated effectively is because there's more, more weak players. Yes, for sure. The moment that live gets stronger is the moment that I'm terrified of being a live player. That's I, all I'm I, saying. I think that's totally fair. Cool. All right. We'll see you guys again next week when uh, Chin finally reappears out of the ether. Nice. Peace, guys. Thanks.